Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, this morning we will want to pray with the Apostle Paul that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight to discern what is best so we'd be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. So Father, as we turn to your word, would you be doing that amongst us? Would you be growing our love in knowledge, knowledge of you, knowledge of how best to serve you and love others? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Pete mentioned, Philippians is a book, really, which reminding us that the living God is committed to our joy. And that's got to be a wonderful thing. God wants us to be absolutely joyful. The living God wants you to have a life filled with joy. That has got to be good news. Uh, Not a superficial joy that ebbs and flows. We could all have that. Uh, It's quite easy to have fun and enjoy uh, Olympic uh, victory and and, uh, delight and glory. You know, that's great fun. Many of us would have fun on our holidays. Great Uh, We have great days. The sun shines upon us. It's easy to be joyful on those days. But then there are other days, rainy days. Um, This letter, perhaps more than any other in the New Testament, would, would drum home that you really can, indeed you should, have a joy in every circumstance, in every situation, a joy that can withstand things going wrong. And that is, that is God's will for you. That is his ambition for you. Fourteen times in this letter you'll get the noun, uh, uh, joy, or the verb, to rejoice. It's an obvious note. Indeed, it's commanded. Uh, by the time you get to chapter 4 and verse 4, 
Paul will tell us, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a command. I'll say it again. Rejoice. So it must be possible. It's not just a vague ambition. It is a command. Do this always. But I guess key to it is the fact that he'll say this joy is in the Lord. That is, as we'll unpack over the next couple of months, that is the key to having a joy which endures each and any situation. That it's in him and not just in our circumstances. And that's, I guess, the problem for most of us. You can easily hear, uh, and you may well be sat this morning, uh, hear the command, you need to rejoice, and you may well be easily thinking, shut up. You don't know the week I've had. You don't know the month I've had. You don't know the sleep last night that I didn't have. And therefore, being told to rejoice is simply not what I want to hear on a Sunday morning. You could hear it that way. Or be excited. Wow, it is possible. It is possible that there's a joy that you can't lose, no matter what's going on in your life. I would imagine that's quite exciting. It is to me. I've not got it, not there all the way. But the problem is often our joy is tied, or our contentment is, joy, is tied to our circumstances. Let me try, and, uh, try this picture and see if it works for you. Uh, uh, over the summer, uh, I spent some time, for the first time in my life, learning to sail. Uh, sail little dinghies, little flimsy things. And uh, here's what I learned. Uh, if you get a, a pleasant wind, 10 knots, it's a delightful thing to do. And uh, you master the basics and you just fly along and the sun shines upon you and you think, this is delightful. And I was built for this. Uh, on other days, and here was my experience, the wind gets up a little bit. And by the time it hits 30, 35 knots, and all the trees uh, are about 30 degrees uh, and a little bit more, it's less fun. Because, for myself, I don't stay in the boat very long. (laughs) And on one particular day, when you hit the sort of 15th capsize within 45 minutes, and you're battered and bruised and all sorts of things, ropes have whipped you and booms have hit you, you think, this is not fun. This is my holiday. Why am I doing this on my holiday? This is not, I'm going to go home battered, bruised and blue. It's not fun. So it can be great. But in different circumstances, it's a little bit harder. Now imagine then, that's the picture. You know, in, in pleasant winds, we can all have a good time in a boat, uh, in a one-man dinghy, in, in extreme winds, in difficult circumstances, less good, less fun. It's not just my, I mean, all sort of experienced sailors are having broken bones and being sent to hospital. And one day they actually closed the beach altogether. It was too dangerous. So it's not just my own incompetence this time, um, to be clear. But so there's the picture. Now, in life, if, if we tie our joy to a little boat of circumstances, we'll have good days and bad days. So if we sail through life, and we sail through life in the boat called health, and that's what we tie our joy to, then on some days we're in good health, and the wind blows nicely, and we think this is terrific, I love life. But then we have bad days, and the conditions are a little more unsettled, and we fall out, and it hurts, and we think, I'm not happy anymore, 
I don't like this anymore if our joy is tied to the boat health. We could substitute any element of circumstance in there. Our joy is tied to money. And when we think we've got enough money, we sail along happily and think life is great. Yeah, here I am in London with a bit of money to spend and life is great. But then something happens. You hit a rock of unemployment or interest rates return to sensible levels and we think, oh, we've borrowed a bit too much money. Uh, And all of a sudden, bang. And there isn't enough money. And again, we fall out of the boat. So you see, if that joy is tied to circumstances, it's a little dingy and sometimes fine. But when the weather gets up, we can't cope. By contrast, Paul would say, if you rejoice in the Lord, that is a little bit like, and you've got to run with me here, now you are in a, an unsinkable ocean liner. It's just genuinely, absolutely unsinkable. So no matter what weather comes against it, you might get a little bit queasy if you're so disposed. You know, in really treacherous conditions, you know, you might feel a little bit queasy, but that is the worst that can happen. You'll never collapse because your joy is tied to something that is permanent, that is stable, that can withstand anything. Is that what Paul will teach us through this letter. It's a joy in the Lord that isn't tied to our circumstances, therefore can endure through anything. We've got a whole letter to consider this, but just in in superficial terms, let me just throw out a few things. Why is the joy in the Lord so robust? Why can it endure? Well, just here's a superficial comment. Who he is. There's no one quite as wonderful as Jesus. Now, there are all people, all of us will have people, if you can think of in your head, when you think of them, they make you smile. You know, there are some friends you just think of and think, oh, yeah, I look forward to seeing them, because they're great. Great company, enjoy being with them. No one is as wonderful as Jesus. So you dwell upon him. It's great. Who he is, what he's done. Here is the God who loves us so much, who is willing to leave the glory of heaven, come down here, experience nothing, experience poverty, and die for people like you and me. To die a death we deserve for our behavior. He gives us perfection as he takes our sin. That's an extraordinary sacrifice. We dwell upon that. That's wonderful. Who he is, what he's done, and what it achieves. That means that heaven is a gift from Jesus Christ. None of us can walk into heaven on our own merits. You can't walk into the queen's bedroom on your own. You'd never get there. You wouldn't be allowed in. We can't walk into heaven on your own. None of us are good enough for that. But Jesus can take us in. And this letter is chock-a-block with references to heaven, to being with the Lord. It starts today. That's utterly superficial. But these are reasons, if you have a joy tied to him, to Jesus, he doesn't change. It can take you through all sorts of circumstances. Now again, you might say, very good, but please, I'm just, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Christian, just not today. Just don't tell me today to have joy in the Lord. My week has just been too bad. Well, let me introduce you, we'll more on this next time, but let me just introduce you briefly to the context of this letter. Paul is writing this letter in prison, from prison, 
in Rome, most probably. He's been there 12 to 18 months. He's awaiting trial for his life, expecting to die. See, his life's not great at the moment. This is not an ivory tower lecture. This is not, a, it's not something you can pick up at Amazon from someone who's written it in, their, in the comfort of their study. Here are 10 tips to be happy. Here are 10 tips to be joyful. Here is a man who's awaiting his death, who's been lonely, um, shackled in a shell, excuse me, blah, 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 shackled in a cell for, uh, for a year plus. And he's saying, I am full of joy and you can be too. He's writing to a church that he'd begun 10 years earlier, around AD 51, something like that. He's writing to, and they've known some happy times, but they're about to know suffering too, or it's just beginning persecution. Uh, Just look down with me, chapter 1, verse 27. Here is the primary reason I think he's writing the letter. He'll tell the church in Philippi, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So here's the main reason, actually, he's writing the letter. Look, opposition is coming. You've been given a hard time. Some of you may know what I know, being imprisoned for the faith. Stick together. Stick together through that. So here's a man writing from prison to a group of people who are experiencing persecution, maybe in prison for their faith, and he can say, I'm joyful in every circumstance, and you can be too if you rejoice in the Lord. So more on that next time, but suffering is the context of the letter. That's the reason he's written this letter, the persecution coming against the church. But the dominant note of it is joy. Not grit your teeth, but rejoice. And you can do that in whatever's coming. Chapter 1, these, are these first, uh, first 11 verses then, little introduction in verses 1 and 2, who he's writing to, uh, the church in Philippi, a town in, in northern Greece as it would be now. Uh, but the, 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 the bulk of this section, verses 3 to 11, he's saying, I've, I'm just full of joy, I'm rejoicing, and in particular in our partnership, or fellowship, you could translate it either way. But the partnership that we have. So let's, uh, let's cut it in these three ways. He's thankful for their partnership. He's confident they share in God's grace and he's prayerful for their growth, okay? Look at those three. He's thankful for their partnership. He's confident they share in God's grace and he prays for their growth. First, let's look at this. He's thankful them for their partnership, verses three to six. Let me read those again. Verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is lovely, I think. I don't know how many letters you receive like that. Whenever I think of you, I just give thanks and pray with joy. Feel free to send me that letter this week. That will be, be an enormous encouragement. I don't know how many people you would write that letter to. Whenever I think of you, I'm just filled with joy. And I give thanks to God. 
It's a wonderful thing. It's a lovely thing. You'd expect Paul to be lonely in a cell for a year plus awaiting trial. He says, I'm so thrilled to know you, to be in partnership with you. And I don't suppose many of us would write that. There aren't huge numbers, perhaps we might write that too. Maybe there are some. Joe, I read, uh, it's not a common thing in the UK. I read uh, a couple of months ago, one of these international surveys that done, that Britain now is the loneliness, this was the headline in the, uh, the paper, Britain is the loneliness capital of Europe. This was judged by the proportion of the population who say they have someone they could rely upon if they have a serious problem. And out of 28 countries, the UK came 26th. So I've got no one I can turn to. The only countries, would you like to know who came low? Of course you would. The only countries that came worse were Denmark and France. Don't know why. Too busy playing with Lego, drinking wine, whatever it may be. Uh, But um, uh, the loneliness capital of Europe, it's tragic, isn't it? Paul says, I'm not lonely, even though I'm alone, because I know the partnership I have with you. Let's look at some of the details. So he can say, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers. I always pray with joy. Why? Well, there's two elements to it here. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And second element, he's confident that God will complete the work he's done in them. That's why he's so thankful. Now let me explain, just just dwell upon this word briefly, partnership. What does that mean, partnership, fellowship? Because I do think it can mean different things to different people, and lots of words do. Someone told me this week that in Mandarin, the same word can mean fish, mother, or kiss. You want to get that one right? Depends upon the tone in which you say it. I want mother and chips. I'm not sure you want, you know, give me a fish. You do. You want to get that one. Uh, you want to get that one right, depending on the tone you use. But partnership. What does that mean? I guess yeah, at the most basic level, it means you have something in common. So some here would hope to be partners in a city firm. You would hope to share your profits in common. Those who are partners in city firms would probably tell you, not often do they say, whenever I think of my partners, I give thanks with joy. Not many cry with grief, perhaps, whatever it may be. Not many would, but, you know, but there's a sharing in common, a sharing in common of the profits in that particular setting. In a sporting context, you might have a partnership. You have one in cricket. The batsmen share in common. This partnership is worth uh, 200 runs, whatever it may be. They're, They're sharing in it. In a marriage, you share in common. You will declare in your marriage vows, uh, all that I have I give to you, all that I have I share with you. We share in this together now. Yes, that's a shock if you marriage vows were a few years ago. That is what you promised. But um, and Paul is saying we have that sort of partnership together. It's not a superficial thing. There's a real depth to it here. And sharing together with you in Jesus Christ, that that gives me extreme joy. And we had this in the children's slot. And I'm confident, Paul says, whenever I think of you, I'm confident that, that God is a God who completes his work. He started with you as Christians. He will take you to be with him in glory. The, um, Paul says, here is a partnership that will endure. It'll keep going. 
Angie, which one am I on? Okay, let's deal with this. It's a partnership that will endure. So Paul says, look, I'm thankful for your partnership. It's a wonderful thing. Second thing, he's confident. Let's push this, this confidence a little bit further. He's confident that they share in God's grace. So verses 6 to 8. He's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you. I feel partnership and I feel confident that God will complete the work amongst you. I feel it's right for me to feel that way because I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. That is what he's saying in verse 7. You're the real deal. I give thanks for our partnership and I'm confident that God will take you to be with him. Because when I look at your Christian lives, you're the real deal. There's nothing superficial here. When I talk about partnership, it is genuine. It's not a real, it's not just a a mere attendance at church. I mean, let me just pick out a few things. We'll we'll get there as we work our way through the letter. But in this letter, partnership means a whole number of things. Chapter 1, verse 19, it's praying. And not just the sort of prayers, dear God, pray for Margaret, Debbie, and Joseph, amen. But Paul is clearly emotionally involved in his prayers. He gives himself to them. His praying would be one element of the partnership. Two would be that they're all committed to sharing the wonderful news of Jesus with others. We read chapter 1, verse 28. They're not frightened to do that. Thirdly, there's a willingness to endure suffering. Together, verse 29 has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's praying for one another, sharing in the gospel message or willingness to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Uh, you get into chapter 4, there's a giving of money to one another. Chapter 4, there's a visiting. The Philippians have sent people to visit Paul in prison. So when he says, I give thanks for our fellowship, our partnership, It is tangible. Here is, here's the thing that gives him such joy. How does a partnership that's shown in, oh, you really pray. You will suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. I've seen you boldly try and tell people the wonderful news of Jesus, even a bit hostile about it. I know you've given money and shared money for that cause. And you've come and visited me when it, It's dangerous to do so. There is a tangible, real partnership here. So, like Paul would say to you and me, you you don't get this sort of joy in a church setting unless you've invested. You get it more commonly with uh, uh, people in their 20s. Quite often people move to London and complain, I've got no friends. I don't have any great friends. London's a big city. To which, politely, in a slightly longer way than I'll express it now, I'll often point out that you, you do need to invest to have friendship. Quite often, you don't have good friends because you're, you're unwilling to pay the cost, which is time, travel, doing things not at your convenience. There is a cost to friendship. You have to invest. And acutely here in partnership... You don't discover enormous joy in the church family unless you give emotionally, 
to people. Prayerfully, time, resources, money, energy. You don't know it unless you do those things. Now let me briefly say there are, there are a number here at Christchurch who know this joy in partnership well. So let's not beat ourselves up in one sense. There are many here who give emotionally, prayerfully, time, money, energy, resources. And so there are happily men and women here that I would walk through fire with because I'm thrilled with the partnership that we have shared and shared together. We've shared in God's grace together. That's a wonderful thing. It is a very rich thing. It's why there's enormous joy in some of the mission partners we've sent from church to go to different places around the globe and you may not see them for a year, but you can Skype and you can get prayer letters and prayer points and you can pray and you can invest emotionally in them, even though if you don't see them face to face. And, and when you hear their news, you're delighted and you commit and you're emotionally involved in them. Those sort of partnerships are fabulous. Now look, if you're not yet persuaded of the Christian faith, you could easily think, well, any group could do this. You might get that in a sports team. You might get that in a work team. You certainly get it in, in perhaps acutely in the military, that sort of sense of working alongside and giving to one another. So yes, but I'd, yes and no. Of course, there's a sociological element. You work on a common project. You, you, you bond. But this partnership is different. Because there's nothing like partnership in Jesus Christ. Because here's a partnership which endures in the face of intense opposition when things go wrong. A partnership which is humble. Which puts aside rivalries. It's a partnership which exists for non-members. It's a partnership which will endure for eternity. And it's a partnership on a project serving Jesus Christ, which is supremely worthy. So that's why this fellowship partnership is the deepest, the richest you can know if you invest in it. A little, little history reading over the, uh, the summer. Did you know? You may have done. I didn't. Uh, Frederick William III of Prussia. Uh, 1800s, uh, was in trouble, financial trouble, fighting wars uh, as, uh, with Napoleon, etc., etc. Uh, and um, during the Napoleonic Wars, got him completely skint uh, and in real trouble. And so what do we do? What do we do? So he set upon this idea. Uh, so in 1813, he asked the women of Prussia, can you please bring your gold? We cannot feed the army. We cannot buy the munitions we need to defeat Napoleon. Can you bring your gold? And in exchange for every item, every gold necklace, bracelet, uh, you'll receive from the treasury a little iron emblem saying, I gave gold for iron, 1813. And of all accounts, they had this idea and think, thought, worth a punt, see if anyone will go for it. Uh, and so they launched this scheme, and it was popular beyond their wildest dreams. So people were bringing in their gold in hordes in order just for a little iron badge. I gave gold for iron in 1813. Gold became completely unpopular in the country 
Because to wear gold was why you were wearing gold. Uh, everyone was much more proud of their little badge, you know, like a blue Peter badge or something. Um, look at my badge. Because I've given for something that matters. Um, apparently the women would meet up and they'd compare, look, you've got, you got, oh, you got three badges. Uh, no doubt there's a little bit of that, a little bit, of course, there always is. But, um, you've given for something that matters because they cared about their country. They didn't want to be invaded. They cared about their king. They cared about the war effort. And so this evolved to now you receive the Iron Cross is the highest sort of symbol of valor commitment uh, in the German military. There's a, they got to the point in their history, well, gold? Who cares about gold? This matters more investing together for the king and his kingdom. And Christians know that. We don't get a little iron badge. It's okay to wear a little bit of gold. Don't have to give it all. But to invest our lives together in the common project of serving Jesus Christ and his king, we know that matters for eternity. It lasts a big involved in that is a source of enormous joy. Our time is gone. He prays. He prays on for their growth. Uh, uh, verses 9 to 11. Let me just read it. I've slightly used my time. Uh, verse 9. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So what's the prayer? That they would grow in love. Why? So they'd grow in knowledge, insight. They would know what to do, what decisions to make. What's the purpose? Verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him, Jesus Christ, to the praise and glory of God. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm confident that God will take you to be with him on the final day, but I'm praying that for you as well, that your love would grow Oh, it's God's work to grow fruit. If someone said to you this morning, can you produce some apples from you? You can't, well, unless you have them in your pocket, you can't just produce apples. You, you, you know, no one lays apples as a human being, but you can help cultivate them. That's what he's saying. I'm praying that that would take place. God would grow fruit in your lives. You need to do what it takes. But I'm praying that your love will grow in this context so that when you face opposition, you'd stand firm. When you sort of disagree within the church, you'd be united with one another so that your partnership won't be disrupted in any way. Philippians will ask us every week, what is your joy tied to? If it's circumstances, your health, family's health, your wealth, those are flimsy boats, you know. And at the moment, the wind may fill your sails. You may think, oh, my life is great. But it doesn't always do that. Those are flimsy boats to have your hope tied to. And if you rejoice in the Lord, that is a joy that is robust. It can endure through each and every circumstance that life throws. And partnership with Christians is one of the richest joys that this life brings. 
read the, uh, many would have read the books at some point in their life. You see the film, The Fellowship of the Ring. Same idea, The Partnership of the Ring, same word. All these characters come together. They hate one another, really. Dwarves hate elves and that sort of thing in the world of Tolkien. But as they work together in this project of saving the world, they become a fellowship. They become a partnership. And even Boromir, who hates Aragorn, the king, comes to love him as they serve together. You know, they have it in the film. As Boromir lays dying, he says, I would have served you, I would have followed you anywhere. My brother, my captain, my king. And that is the sort of fellowship that serving Jesus Christ can produce. There is real joy in that. Many of us know that. Let's pray we grow in that. Let's begin now. Let's pray together. Our Father, I'm sure most of us here would say we, we haven't quite yet mastered joy in every circumstance. Because we don't rejoice fully in the Lord. We tie our joy to other things, fleeting things, flimsy boats that easily capsize. Would we understand more of why it is so good to trust in Jesus Christ? Would we know more of joy in him? Father, would our love abound more and more in knowledge of him and insight so we'd know how to live, so we'd discern how to live, we'd be blameless, we'd grow fruit for him. Would we have a great joy in our partnership together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.